Amen. Scars tell a story. They can be small scars, like if you accidentally cut your finger when when chopping vegetables, maybe only one or two stitches, probably under an inch in length. They can be longer scars, like the scar that results from a C-section. They can be about six inches in length. They can be straight scars, curved scars, jagged scars, irregular shaped scars, and they can be anywhere on our bodies, anywhere there's been an injury or a deep incision or a burn. Regardless of what type of scar or where the scar is located, scars tell a story. A child can go up to her mother and see the scar in her belly and, and say, what's that? And the mom can tell the story about the day her daughter was born. Or maybe you, you see a scar on, on someone's arm at work and, and ask them about it, and that prompts a very quick story about how they cut their arm on rusty sheet metal when they were in their 20s. Scars tell a story. Jesus had scars. Jesus had scars on his wrists, on his feet, and in his side. And they're not from an accident or from a surgery. They're from being crucified on the cross. Jesus' scars tell the story of salvation accomplished. The, the scars point to the validity, the, the authenticity, authenticity of the resurrection and, the, and of the crucifixion that took place. This is the same man who was on the cross. And in our passage this morning, Jesus shows his scars to his disciples And then he commissions them and equips them to go out and proclaim the greatest story that's ever been told. He goes out, he tells them to proclaim the story behind the scars. And that's the story of salvation accomplished. The gospel. It's the gospel. And Jesus and John make it plain what the expected response is whenever the story behind the scars is told. The expected response is is belief. Along the way this morning, we're going to explain what Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. We're going to unpack that. We're also going to take a look at Thomas's embarrassing unbelief. This this is the passage where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. That's in here, and we're going to examine that this morning. So let's read it. John 20, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, verse 19 begins with, saying on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is still Resurrection Sunday, same day. Jesus had risen that morning. This is later on in the evening, still Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. It says the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Is this a reasonable fear? Yes, it is. If you want to get rid of the opposition. You don't stop with the general. You also go after his lieutenants. They need to take care of the, the at least number one man or number two man, the, the, the leaders of the, the, the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin and those that had plotted against Jesus to kill him. If they were going to do the, a good job of getting rid of this rebellious uh, problem, uh, this rebellious movement, uh, they need to get rid of the inner circle. They need to take these men out so no one just steps in. For all they knew, for all the disciples knew, they could be hunted. And Jesus told them to expect persecution to the point of death. This was part of his last words to them on the night before the crucifixion. John fifteen twenty. if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John sixteen two. the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So yes, this fear is reasonable under the circumstances. We can, we can imagine them gathering in this, in this room and, and, and Peter calling out, hey, last one in, can you lock the door as you're coming in just, just to be on the safe side? They were fearful of being raided by the first century equivalent of a SWAT team. The locked doors reveal their fear, but they also... Uh, This detail is also included by John to highlight the miraculous entrance of Jesus into the room. It said, Jesus came and stood among them. So this happens twice in our passage. It's here and also in verse 26, both times locked doors, and then both times Jesus appears and is suddenly in their midst. And the reason John is telling this is to highlight this was a miraculous entrance. The doors were locked. Jesus didn't come through the door. Everyone else has to enter a room through the door. Jesus didn't use the door. He came miraculously. And this is one of those places in scripture where it's tempting to color the text with our own assumptions 
and our own ideas of what happened and sometimes arrive at conclusions that aren't necessary. For example, many people teach based on this verse and also the verse in earlier in chapter 20 about the linen strips that Jesus passed through the door and he passed through the linen strips. He may have that that very well could have be uh, that very well could be how he came to stand in their midst, but he didn't have to. He could have simply materialized. He could have simply appeared. He could have simply disappeared uh, at, from within the linen strips. We're not told. It's not a necessary conclusion. One thing almost everyone agrees on, though, is this. Jesus' resurrected body was a supernatural body with capabilities that we do not have. And at the same time, it was a real physical body. This was a body that could be touched. This was a body that could be seen. This was a body that could eat food. We're told that in scripture. So this was not ghost Jesus. This was Jesus's real resurrected glorified body, but it was, it was supernatural, but it was still a physical body. We might want to call it an enhanced body. Jesus tells them, peace be with you. This is the first words, these are the first words out of his mouth. Peace be with you. The very first words that they hear. Remember, they have not seen Jesus. They have not had interaction with him since the cross. These are words of comfort. They're words of forgiveness. They're words of acceptance. They're words of assurance. And they're words that are designed to put them at ease. Uh, there was a, a young child who was playing around inside the house and they, their toy got stuck on top of the dining room hutch. And so not seeing anyone around, they pulled a drawer out and started climbing up the hutch and they were swatting at it and they swat, swatted a glass bowl that was only used on special occasions. Mom brought it out for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And when mom used it, she talked about how this was a special dish and she would look at her child and say, your great-grandmothers used to use this dish. And the dish crashed on the floor, just broke into a thousand pieces. And the child climbed down quickly and mom came rushing into the room saying, what happened? And the child knew that that was wrong. He shouldn't have been climbing on the hutch. The child knew that this was going to make mom really mad. And so they were waiting for the punishment to come. And their, their lips started quivering and they started shaking. And the first thing mom said was, it's okay. It's okay. I love you. Let's, let's make sure the child understands I still love you. It's going to be okay. Let, let's make sure I put this child at ease. Let's calm down. Then we can talk about how you're not supposed to climb on the hutch. Then we can talk about how people are more important than things. Then we can talk about how it was an accident. I know you didn't mean to break it, but let's just put the child at ease. These disciples, did not break a family heirloom. They did much worse. Over the last few days, they have abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. The synoptics tell the description of what happened in the garden. We don't have it in John. He didn't tell us that, but the synoptics tell us what happened in the garden. Jesus is faced 
with the impending wrath of God for the sins of the elect being placed upon him, and he asks for his brothers to pray for him in the garden. I need you. Please stay awake. Please watch and pray with me. He goes off. He comes back. They're sleeping. It happens again, twice. And then in the garden, when they're, when they're gathered uh, in the garden after the prayer, the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. They scatter. They leave him. They abandon Jesus. So much for having my back. So much for saying, I've, I've got your six. We just left. We, we abandoned Jesus. And then when it came to the cross, other than John, nobody. Th- these are my closest friends. They didn't show up to the cross. And now they're cowering together behind locked doors. The first thing Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. They, they may have been expecting punishment. He says, it's okay. I still love you. And immediately after putting them at ease, he showed them his scars. It says his hands and his side. Hands meaning wrists. Just so we all know, the Greek word means the wrist and the, ha- uh, the hand and the wrist area. And Roman crucifixion was to drive the nail through the wrist bones. It would not support the weight if they were crucified in the center of the palm. So whenever you see a picture, that's not accurate. It was wrist. So wrists and side. These scars point to salvation accomplished. This is the story they tell. All scars have a story. Salvation accomplished. They tell the story of Jesus taking the wrath of God upon himself for the sins of his people. They tell the story of substitutionary atonement for sin, of victory over the power of sin and death for all who believe. Then it says the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Seeing the scars was enough. That was enough to validate, to to establish full recognition that this was, in fact, Jesus. Peace be with you. Then in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus is drawing a comparison here. He's saying, I'm going to be sending you like I was sent by the Father. So we have to ask, in what way was Jesus sent by the Father? Well, Jesus was sent by the Father to accomplish salvation. Jesus went to the cross to make atonement for sin. That's not how these men are going to be sent out. They're not going to the cross. They're not making atonement for sin. So that's not it. What is he talking about? Jesus was sent into the world to be a messenger, to be a proclaimer of the truth, a witness to the truth. John eighteen thirty seven. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. All-inclusive truth. The truth about who God is. The truth about who we are. Where we came from. Why we're here. Where we're headed. How we are to be made right with God, because we're born not right with God, how we are to live rightly before God in this life as people who are created in his image. The truth about who God is and who we are. The the truth. As Jesus was sent to do that, now he's saying, I am sending you to go out and 
do the same thing. These disciples being sent out by Christ to proclaim the gospel and the truth about God. These disciples were being sent out to tell the story behind the scars. Salvation accomplished, the gospel. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop there. We'll handle the part about forgiving sins in just a moment. Let's talk about the breathing on them and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Greek word for breath is the same for wind and spirit. So the question is, in what way were these disciples receiving the Holy Spirit? And this is one of those places where it is helpful, first of all, to identify what it doesn't mean because upon reading this passage, a lot of us will kind of gravitate towards something we've heard or people have talked about or, or our idea of what we think it means. So let's talk about the three things it doesn't mean. Number one, it does not mean that they are receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time. They were regenerate believers. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus taught that in John chapter three. In order to be born again, you have to have the Spirit's regenerating power. So the Spirit was already at work in these men. That's not it. They weren't receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time. Number two, it doesn't mean that they're receiving the Holy Spirit so they can now perform miracles. Some read this and say, ah, I get it. Okay, they needed this so then they could go out and do all those wonderful things in the book of Acts. No, they've been performing miracles for a while. Jesus gave them the authority and the power and commanded them to go out and heal the sick and exercise demons in Matthew chapter 10. And we know some disciples came back and reported they had been doing those exact same things. So that's not it. And number three, it does not mean that they received the gift of speaking in tongues. However, that's understood. We've talked about that in the past. We're not going to go into it this morning. Because the, the, the speaking of the tongues was not conferred upon until Pentecost. So it's not that. In order to grasp what's going on here, we need to remember that John chapter 20 and Luke chapter 24 are parallels. Um, There are several of them in all four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John over by itself. The first three are called synoptics. There are many things that are told differently in each of the Gospels. There are more in common with the first three than with John. John kind of stands alone. It does its own thing. But there are some things that are told from each different perspective so the church can get a a, a more uh, fully developed understanding of Jesus' life and ministry. And this is one of those places. John 20, 19 through 25, and Luke 24, 36 through 49 are talking about the same event. The same evening of the Resurrection Sunday where Jesus appears to his disciples. Both record his appearing to them suddenly by standing in their midst. Both record Jesus' first words being, peace be to you. Both record Jesus showing them his crucifixion scars. And both record the same commissioning type of sending language. One of the few differences between the parallel in Luke 24 and John 20 is this. Luke 24:45 says, "Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures." And we compare that with our John 20:22, 20, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Both Luke and John are describing the same event using different language. 
Jesus was giving them Holy Spirit-enabled understanding and knowledge. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives believers light and understanding. Every Sunday, both here and in many churches throughout the world, we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit before we before we open the Bible and, and preach from it. It's because the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. For example, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 12, 8, for to one is given the Spirit the utterances or the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So to have knowledge of something it means to comprehend that subject, to intellectually, cognitively grasp it and understand it. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, where it's talking about spiritual gifts used to build up the church, it's not talking about knowledge in general, like knowledge of uh, biology or gardening or shoemaking. It's talking about knowledge of scripture to build up the church. So when Jesus breathed on these disciples, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He was giving them Holy Spirit-empowered understanding and knowledge of the scriptures. Or he was opening their minds so they could understand the scriptures. If these men are about to be sent out and to proclaim the story behind the scars, if these men are about to be sent out and to faithfully proclaim the grand redemptive plan of God that has unfolded since the beginning of the Old Testament and centered on Christ, then they need to understand how the redemptive plan of God has unfolded throughout the pages of Scripture and has been centered on Christ. They need Holy Spirit-empowered understanding, and that's what the breathing out in this passage means. But there is another takeaway that we can't ignore. It's hard to miss the allusion to Genesis 2-7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I mean, it's pretty obvious. We can see how those two kind of are, are very similar. The breathing on them to receive the Holy Spirit teaches us that the first and most important qualification for ministry in Christ's name is to have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Just as God breathed into man and gave him physical life, the Holy Spirit breathes into us and gives us spiritual life. And that qualifies for us ministering in Christ's name. In other words, if you're not a believer, then you really have no business ministering in Christ's name. That's why our church and many churches throughout the world insist on membership before service. There was a man who, who went to a church several years ago and he was not a believer. He, he was a, we might call him a seeker. Um, he knew a little bit about the Bible and church, but he wasn't ready to go all in yet. But there was a regular pattern of attendance and as he was coming, he must have felt some sort of conviction of the Holy Spirit because he had this feeling to, to want to give back to God. He felt like he owed God something, so he wanted to, to do something. So after the service one Sunday, he went up to the pastor and he said, I want to get involved. I, I, I want to do something. Is there a way where I can get plugged in? I want to start serving in the church. And the pastor said, well, that's great. I'm glad you have this desire to serve God, but I don't think you're a member yet, are you? And the man became defensive. And he said, no, but what does that have to do with it? 
pastor said, well, um, a lot, because in order to minister in Christ's name, you first have to come to Christ in faith. It wouldn't be accurate or healthy for the church to have people that have not repented of their sin acting as ambassadors of Christ on behalf of the church. The man said, you're saying I can't volunteer at this church? The pastor said, well, have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and committed yourself to him, made a profession of faith in front of the congregation? He turned around and left. In order to minister or serve in Christ's name, we first need to be in Christ by faith. Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, we need to unpack this. First of all, I hope we all recognize Jesus is not granting the power of God to men. Jesus is not saying the prerogative of God to forgive sins. I am now handing over to you. So from now on, you personally, autonomously can forgive individual people their sins. That is not what's happening here. God alone has the power to forgive sins. First uh, John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. God, not us. Matthew six twelve. Jesus commands all people to pray to God for the forgiveness of their sins. God alone forgives. And then Mark 2, 7, the scribes rightly ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? There's not one example in all of the New Testament of any of the apostles or the disciples of Jesus forgiving someone's sins. There's not one hint, not a hint of Paul telling Timothy or Titus in the pastoral epistles, this is how I want you to go about when you forgive someone their sins. The Bible nowhere states that forgiving sins is the responsibility or the duty of an elder or an overseer or a minister of the church. So no one, not an elder, not a priest, not a minister, not a pastor can forgive sins. That belongs to God alone. In fact, to do that or even to affirm that is blasphemy. It's false teaching. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is giving his disciples declarative authority to pronounce whose plural, sins are forgiven and whose are not forgiven. The any in verse 23 is plural, not singular. So it's, it's not that you can go up to one person and say, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I'm giving you declarative authority to proclaim whose, plural, sins are forgiven and whose, plural, sins are not forgiven. To help us see this more clearly, let's go back and look at our parallel account from Luke. We've already highlighted the similarities. Here's where they differ. John 20, 23, here's our passage. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then Luke 24, 46 through 49 says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So in both cases, Jesus is telling his disciples, who have been given that Holy Spirit-empowered knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, to go out and proclaim to the nations 
which people have their sins forgiven and which people do not have their sins forgiven. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We don't come to the book of Acts and see Peter or Paul walking up to someone and, and, and bowing and laying their hand on their head and saying, your sins are forgiven. We don't see that. We don't see them going into a booth and inviting someone to sit in a booth next to them and having them confess their sins and then saying, I say, your sins are forgiven. That's not what we see. What we do see is them declaring who has their sins forgiven based on their status of Christ. Here's Acts 10. 43, this is Peter, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's a declaration. That's a proclamation. Uh, Paul, Acts 13, 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's what we see. It's declarative authority to announce which group has their sins forgiven and which group does not. Now, there is no such thing as apostolic secession, but the church does continue to proclaim the message of the scars, the the gospel message, and as they do, they can confidently declare these same things. Whoever repents and believes in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven. Whoever does not repent and believe in Jesus Christ stands unforgiven before God. That is the message the church is to proclaim. Well, finally, let's look at Thomas and Jesus' scars. Uh, Thomas was one of the 12. He was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them in verses 19 through 22 on Resurrection Sunday. And when the rest of the disciples had seen Jesus, they told Thomas, but he would not believe them. And this is where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. This is proverbial. Even uh, outside the church, we, we may have heard, even if you're not a believer, you've got coworkers that say, oh yeah, I've heard of that phrase, um, doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Why don't you believe me? This is where that comes from. And this is what he said. Unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is not a flattering picture of Thomas. Uh, He has the eyewitness testimony of 10 of his most trusted brothers, and he doesn't believe them. He just says, I'm not going to believe you. I hear you. I hear what you're saying to me. I don't believe you. Why would they lie? Why would they lie to him? He refuses to believe. And he does so in a very strong way. He uses a double negative. If we had to very literally translate this, it would be, no, not will I believe. Or never. Or we might say, never in a million years will I believe that Jesus rose from the grave and that you saw him and that he's, he's no longer dead. That's where Thomas is. Verse 26, fast forward eight days later. So the next Sunday, using an inclusive reckoning of days of the week, same day of the week, same group assembled, same locked doors, same Jesus appearing in their midst, and he greets them in the same way. Peace be to you. So what what do we see here? He's repeating his appearance for Thomas. He's, He's doing the exact same thing just for you, Thomas, and he addresses him directly. This is what he says. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Are we seeing what's going on here? Just, just so it's very clear, here's what Thomas said. Unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands. Thomas said, unless I place my hand into his side, Jesus said, put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas said, I will never believe. Jesus said, do not disbelieve, but believe. You see what's happening? With this direct address to Thomas, Jesus is saying three things. And the first thing he's saying was, I heard you. Last Sunday, I heard what you said. I heard what you said about not believing. God hears every single word we say. God hears every word we speak, every word we shout, every word we whisper, every word we think, every word we say when we're driving, when nobody else is in the car. He hears everything. He knows everything. There are no secrets from God. We're not hiding anything from God. And this is one reason why God is able to administer perfect justice. He knows everything perfectly. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So he's telling Thomas, I heard you. Second, not only did I hear you, Thomas, but I'm calling you out of I'm calling you out on it. You of all people, one of my 11 disciples, and you're you're refusing to believe you're the unanimous testimony of your brothers and you're you're not listening to them. That's a fail. Thomas, and number three, I'm willing to show you grace. I am willing to condescend to your doubt. I came here today on this Sunday so that you will believe. So believe. Leave your unbelief and start believing. This is a command from the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas obeys. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. This is the response of someone who has just been convicted of his sin, the sin of unbelief. This is a response of repentance. This is a response of amazement. This is a response of worship. And this is a response of belief. Thomas is confessing that Jesus is God and he's correct. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's pronouncing a blessing on everyone who is to come after this group. No one else, no other generation is able to see the scars. They did. They saw and believed. But now Jesus is blessing every single generation that has come after them. He's blessing every single believer today that has, seen, that has not seen and yet believed. Because remember, as we said last week, we don't see and believe. We hear and believe. We hear the word of God proclaimed. So I have to ask this question. Have you believed? The expected response to the story behind the scars is belief. Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. Have you believed in him? Scars tell a story. And Jesus' scars tell the story of salvation accomplished. Now, most of us view scars 
as ugly or unwanted. Uh, most of us will, will kind of cover up our scars or, or maybe even use some concealer if the, if the scar can, can be seen uh, where our clothes don't cover. Um, we want to get rid of our scars. And the good news is this, from everything we can tell in the New Testament and everything we can tell in Scripture, it doesn't seem like we're going to have scars in eternity. It seems like our resurrected bodies are going to be made whole, they're going to be without disease, and they are not going to be with any blemish. It looks like we're going to be scarless in eternity. But Jesus retained his scars. Jesus was making these post-resurrection appearances. He still had the scars on his wrists and his feet and in his side. John wants us to see that Jesus still has these scars. These scars are featured prominently in this passage. He refers to them several times. Hey, it's like there's this big sign. Hey, look, Jesus still has his scars, even though he's in his resurrected, glorified body. Revelation 5, 6, John sees lamb, quote, as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Slain with marks or scars. So, from what we can gather from the New Testament, it seems as if Jesus has this, his scars forever, for eternity. Jesus' scars will forever tell the story of salvation accomplished. In the heavenly realm, all the angels will see it. All the elect will see it for eternity. You and I will see it. We will see his scars. They will be an eternal reminder of the price he paid to redeem us from our sins. But, as John says, you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe that you're a sinner who needs a savior. You must believe that you you need Christ in order to enter through the door into the kingdom of God. Verses 30 and 31 close out the chapter and we've talked about these verses so many times through this sermon series. We've referred to them so many times. And they summarize the message of John. Jesus plus belief equals life. It's just that simple. We must believe in Jesus if we are to have life. If you have not fully committed your life to Jesus Christ, or if for whatever reason you have been reluctant to go all in, and believe in Jesus Christ. I want to close out by reading these words. And I want, to, I want us all to try to hear these with fresh ears. Listen to these words of John. Listen carefully. And carefully consider these words of God written to you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen.